0: 720 WGN. It's John Hanson. It's Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Audrey Anderson in the building from Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. Audrey, always good to see you. How are you doing?
1: Good, thanks. Thanks again for inviting me. How are you? I'm doing good. You seemed a
0: little surprised by some of the stats I was uh, giving you about prisoners.
1: I was. I was surprised. I thought Illinois, unfortunately, ranked rank higher.
0: Yeah, so where we rank Illinois in terms of, and this is per capita, right? So if population size wasn't uh, a factor... Per 100,000 people, 440 Illinoisans are in prison, and uh, that is good for 36th. So kind of in the middle, but on the lower half of things. And again, Louisiana is 980, so more than twice as many people per capita are in prison. Well over twice as many are in prison in Louisiana, Oklahoma, Mississippi. Rounding out the top 10 are Georgia, Kentucky, Alabama, Arkansas, Texas, Arizona, Tennessee. Florida's number 11. The others on the bottom of it are Massachusetts, Vermont, D.C., Rhode Island, Minnesota, Maine, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Hawaii. There are some geographical tendencies in these lists, and uh, that's just the way that is. I I was also chatting with you, and I I, kind of teased ahead about the idea of voting after you have been convicted of a felony and how there's different states that handle things differently and uh Maine, Vermont and DC, you never lose the right to vote, which I didn't realize that was a that any states allowed that.
1: Right, I didn't realize that either.
0: Yeah, there's three states that even if you're in prison it seems like you still get to vote. There's a bunch of states including Illinois that you're automatically restored after release. There's another group of states where you're restored after your sentence is complete, which would include parole or probation. And then there's, I think I said, eleven states that uh, you have to do some action after post-sentencing waiting period. What are your thoughts on that? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I know that's a really hot topic, and you're kind of giving me the eyes, like, why are you asking me this? John? <laughs> well, you've spent, you've been on oh. both sides, right? And the, I have. And the right to vote is is, you know, is enshrined in our Constitution. Right.
1: It's inherent. And just because a person makes a mistake and they're convicted of a felony doesn't mean that one of their basic rights should be withdrawn. But I guess it could be a slippery slope, because if you're a convicted felon, you can't possess weapons, and that's Second Amendment, right, to bear arms. So how do then you choose the right to vote versus, obviously, the right to have arms and weapons, but then... The argument could obviously be made if you're a convicted felon, you shouldn't be in possession of weapons.
0: It's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great point that, uh, no, you should never lose uh, an enshrined constitutional right. Well, you do. You lose the Second Amendment right when you are a convicted felon. Interesting. Yeah, I, I just uh, – I love people's thoughts on that. I am – I oscillate between the two sides. I, I, I do feel like – um the punishment of you not being able to vote is not the deterrent that people maybe think it is. I don't think someone who's about to commit a felony stops himself right beforehand and says, "I can't vote in the midterms if I do this." Um, so if it's not a deterrent, why is that added onto the list of you know things that happen to you after you become a felon? Right. At the same time, you want law-abiding citizens to be the ones theoretically to make the decisions. But then, what's that uh, wait period, anyways? Uh, yeah, I think what we have in Illinois, where after you're out of prison, you automatically get that right, seems to kind of be that middle ground where a lot of people sit. Okay, we'll veer into the topics we decided we were going to talk about. Sorry, I just went off on a little tangent.
1: No, it's interesting. I've never had a client say, oh my gosh, I can't vote. That, really? No, have you, right. no one's no, ever said no that one's to ever you? said.
0: I do wonder, though, because if you still have a felony on your record, although I guess in Illinois, as soon as you're released, you're fine, but when we talk about these other states where there's action required, there's waiting periods, it kind of reminds me of when people have to come to you, not for voting here in Illinois, but for other things, about the expungements that you deal with, because that's a lot of what you do, right?
1: Right, we do a lot of expungements, so that would definitely make a difference in those states where you couldn't vote Mm -hmm. unless you did something.
0: Is someone always ringing your uh, phone line for an expungement situation because... They can't get a job they because of something they did when they were 18 or 19 years old.
1: Yes, it happens quite a lot. Even people that were found not guilty that could sometimes impair them. I had a, a lady who just called the other day that was a problem. But yeah, definitely. I've had some people that are in their 50s and 60s and their company got bought out by another company mm-hmm. and they were going to lose their job because of something that happened when they were 19, but they've been working at this company for over 10 plus years oh. and doing well. That's yeah,
0: terrible. you could be at a company for 20 years, it's bought up by someone, that company has a different policy or what reviews all employees and their backgrounds to determine whether they'll keep them on or not. Something pops up from that long ago and that makes a difference?
1: It, it, to that company it does, but it didn't seem to affect that person's quality of work or what their co-workers or bosses thought of them. Mm-hmm. And then you also
0: said that if, even if people are found not guilty, these things on their record can affect their hiring practices moving forward or college applications, stuff like that?
1: Well, it causes for concern. So yes, I've had someone say that the school or a job had turned them away because when it came down to them and another person that had no criminal arrests, it made a difference to them because they were arrested, even though they were found not guilty.
0: So you're able to, if you're found not, is it easier if you're found not guilty to get an arrest expunged off the record? What's the process of that?
1: Right. It is definitely a lot easier for judges to say, well, the Juries heard it or a judge has heard the evidence, so it should be expunged as opposed to if you pled guilty or you were found guilty of something.
0: Okay. All right. AndersonAA.com is where you can go for more information about that. 630-877-5800. That's the number you want people calling as well, too? Yes. All right. That's just one facet of what you do. We've had plenty of conversations about a variety of topics. The DCFS thing does come up again because it always is popping up in the news, and it has recently in the governor's debates and, and, and how Governor Pritzker has or hasn't handled DCFS. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we I just Googled DCFS Illinois before the show today and saw multiple cases in which the Department of Children and Family Services uh, is under scrutiny because of being called to homes. And um, having that on their record or, you know, they looked into this and then later uh, a child dies in that same home. And this is a really delicate thing, Audrey, because I think there's a lot of dedicated DCFS workers who are understaffed and underpaid. Um, But we also have, rightfully so, uh, a commitment to keep every child alive, right? And I feel like those two things often butt heads.
1: Right. That's so true. And it seems as if it's probably happening more than what we hear because in reading the articles, I saw one like you did just a few days ago as well. And I think that one came to light about that little boy who was young, three or so. It's only because his foster parents brought it to everyone's attention. So think how many other cases are going under the radar. And it is difficult. I was just speaking with a, a DCFS caseworker who was acting as a supervisor because there was an opening and there had no one yet to fill it. So she was in that place and she was just wearing so many hats mm-hmm. trying to go back and explain why DCFS had been inactive for nine months for a, a case. So you just feel terrible for them in the situation. They're so overworked, but what's the solution? Is it from the top? Like you hear in these debates, the director of DCFS being held in contempt, but yes, it's just a piece of paper. Nothing's really happening to him Mm -hmm. because of his inaction or the consequences of these cases falling through the cracks.
0: So structurally, is there a Department of Children and Family Services in every state? Is this a federal thing or is this determined individually by each state how it operates?
1: Right. It's typically in each state that it operates and they have somewhat reciprocity. So if a a family has an investigation that goes out of state, DCFS tries to find their equivalent in another state mm-hmm. to follow up with them because we're not going to have a Chicagoland caseworker traveling to Minnesota to do an investigation.
0: And it imagine has a budget that's approved by the state legislatures and signed by the governor, right? Correct.
1: Correct. So
0: if there is a lack of funding, you could potentially point fingers at state legislative bodies and the governor right in terms of not pushing through more funding
1: correct but their funding is significant it's over it's it's significant it's mm-hmm. tens of millions a year that's a lot of money but when you think of all the caseworkers and they're traveling and you need support staff then you have main offices that are in Springfield doing the processing of the paperwork or just IT people to handle all the electronic of processing the paperwork and the orders and things like that and the or the investigative files
0: 773 texted in the fault of the failure of DCFS has to fall squarely on the governor that's the 773's thoughts yours are also welcome too the governor did release a statement after the story of this tragic story of this 3-year-old and in part they said over th- he said over 350 million dollars in new resources have been dedicated to revamping the hotline hiring new staff providing regular training increasing pay and modernizing technology to replace the department's antiquated systems which I think people can appreciate more money going at it, but it's not always a money issue, is it? I mean, you can you can pour resources into something, but they have to be targeted in the right ways.
1: Right. Absolutely. And so what's interesting is you can see how much caseworkers or any government employee makes. So they do make significant amount of money. They're making 80,000 plus a year if you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. So by some standards, that's a significant amount of money right. for the average median income for a family or an individual. Mm-hmm. So- I, I don't know if it's because they fall in the cracks or because they shuffle caseworkers around because people leave and so then they have to move them from one agency location to another to fill in so things fall in the gaps or there's just too many so they just can't keep track of everything that they're juggling all at one time.
0: For sure. 312-981-7200. I'd love to have your thoughts on this. Uh, either you uh, either if you blame maybe the governor or the administration or maybe love, we'd love to hear from people that maybe even work in DCFS. We're happy to keep you anonymous here on the phone. I'd love to hear from a caseworker who's struggling and can tell us a little bit about what's going on on the inside. We'll continue our conversation with Audrey Anderson as well. Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. AndersonAA.com. Their phone number six three zero eight seven seven fifty eight hundred. 630-877-5800. More after the news here on WGN. Um, we're chatting about DCFS, which is always a political football, right? I mean, I don't think there's been a single election where it hasn't been scrutinized uh, and whether the governor did should have done more or not. Right. I mean, this has always been a hot topic.
1: Definitely. It's always been a hot topic. And you wonder how much can one person, a governor, do to change everything. But then you think they're the governor. They should be able to do something.
0: Right. And they are the ones that ultimately have the authority to step in and change perhaps the director of the DCFS, the budget or call for more money funding through the legislature. I want to just make sure we understand exactly what it is that DCFS does or doesn't do. So as we, you know, choose who we want to blame or be upset with, that we are focusing our energies and solutions in the right place. Does that sound good, Audrey? Excellent idea. Okay. So DCFS is called often by a lot of people. Sometimes it's very legitimate calls. Sometimes it's a nosy neighbor who's upset by something. We've talked about that in the past. What happens first? DCFS during business hours will come to a home where they feel like or have been told something has happened, right?
1: Right. So typically, everyone has to call a hotline. It's the same number, and it goes to the center. Mm -hmm. And then the center figures out where the call originated from or where the alleged abuse occurred. Mm -hmm. So then they have to farm that information out to the local DCFS office within context, whichever caseworker is on duty. And there's always someone on duty 24-7, 365.
0: And there's many different offices around the state.
1: they are all over the state. There are a lot up here north. There's not as many as you get to central and southern Illinois.
0: Okay. So they get called, a caseworker who is on duty, there's always someone on duty, gets handed the case, the information, right?
1: Right. So then they're supposed to go. So say there's a family in the emergency room and a six-month-old has a broken limb. DCFS is supposed to go to the hospital, the emergency room then, two in the morning, midnight, Because a doctor could
0: have called or or someone in the hospital could have called, right?
1: Typically, because doctors, the hospital staff, they're mandated reporters. So DCFS is required to go then to just make the initial determination if the child is safe once their little cast is put on to go back home with the parents.
0: And they make their determination in the hospital.
1: Right, they're supposed to make the determination at the hospital and go and see and talk with the parents and talk with the doctors to see If the parent's explanation is reasonable, if it really was a baby just rolling over, falling off a couch, or a toddler tripping and falling, or if it was something more, a twisting motion by a parent that was angry, Mm -hmm. it's abuse as opposed to an accident.
0: This seems like a really hard determination to make.
1: It is, because you're just hearing from the parents and then the doctor's guessing, based on their experience, what the fracture or the injury could be from. Like a a broken bone for a five-year-old. Is it abuse from a parent or because they fell off a bicycle?
0: Hard to tell. And that five-year-old is maybe not going to give you the answer that answers it truthfully, of course. You right. can't rely on a five-year-old to be to have the with-for-all to be able to do that in a truthful way. Maybe they're scared of answering right. the true true way. That's hard to determine. Let's say it's a visit at home. Someone calls and they they said they saw something or they heard something and, and they someone goes to the home. Are home visits 24 hours a day?
1: Home visits are also 24 hours a day. They may not go in the middle of the night if it's something that's not as serious. Mm -hmm. It could just be that they just go during regular business hours to knock on the door. But DCFS goes, perhaps the family may not be home. Mm -hmm. So the child's at school or daycare, parents at work, who knows, or out just shopping. Mm -hmm. But yes, they're supposed to go. To the home.
0: If the child's at school and the parents are somewhere else, can DCFS go directly to the school and just talk to the kids without the parents there?
1: Yes, that's usually the simplest. So especially for if they know that a child is school age, DCFS figures out where's the closest school and goes there directly first because they know that they can talk to the child without a parent trying to interfere or coerce or prompt the child to, to talk.
0: Do the parents have to be notified?
1: No. Okay. They are never notified.
0: Okay. Not not ahead of time or even if they were – you're telling me – sorry, I want to make sure I understand. If DCFS goes and talks to a child at a school about something that someone alleged happened or they got a tip or maybe from a teacher even, right? Teachers report this stuff, I assume. Right. And they talk to the child. They determine perhaps that they're going to let the child go back home and let it be. They never notify the parents that they ever talk to the kid?
1: Oh, no. They, can then, they have to talk to the parents, too.
0: Afterwards. Afterwards. Okay, okay, okay. Right.
1: They don't have to notify, and they never notify beforehand.
0: All right. So we have these prongs where I, the visit could happen at the hospital, could happen at the school, could happen at home. Then what does DCF do? They, they, they've talked to whatever parties they're able to talk to or want to talk to, and then they make a determination right then and there, what?
1: That the child has been abused in or neglected, so should be removed from the home, taken from the parents, or for now, the child is safe and should go back home.
0: Okay. And those are really the two black or white choices they have at that point?
1: That's it. Those are the only two choices that the caseworker from DCFS has.
0: If they want to then take the child from the home, do they go with the caseworker? Do they call local law enforcement to help with that? How does that work?
1: Both. So sometimes the caseworker will just... Take the child from school themselves, or if it's from a home situation, depending on the facts or allegations, caseworkers could call law enforcement. And typically, when they do remove a child from a home where parents are there, the caseworkers will call law enforcement to help.
0: Which I can understand, right? I mean, that could be a potentially dangerous situation. We've talked about before DCF workers have faced violence. Um, These are emotional situations. You would want support there from people who are trained in that area. Okay. If a child is taken from the home, what happens next?
1: Then, within forty-eight hours, business hours, excluding weekends and holidays, there's a hearing before the judge, and then it's now pretty much out of DCFS's control. Okay. And then it's up to the prosecutors and to argue that the child should remain out of the home. And,
0: and these are local prosecutors then from the correct, state's attorney's from offices. The state's attorney's office okay. for the
1: county. And then they go to a hearing before the judge, explaining that what the caseworker did from DCFS was. Correct. And the child needs to stay out of the home and then eventually go to trial on the allegations and then provide services through independent agencies for the family.
0: Okay. So this then goes into the court's hands. It goes before a judge or a, a jury? A judge, I mean. A
1: judge. Just a judge. There's okay. no juries. And
0: we don't have a lot of information about what happens in these rooms.
1: Right. They're sealed. So unless you're a direct party then people really don't know about it
0: okay so a child's been removed from the home the prosecutor takes over the case they argue before the judge this child should not be in the home a judge that makes that determination are there chances i mean i guess there are where the judge says no the child should go back with their parents
1: yes if, i've seen that and it happens yes
0: the child goes back with the parent and again there's also the flip side which we'll get to that there's overreach sometimes a lot of times And the child should absolutely go back with the parents. I'm not saying that every – I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush. just trying to really understand this. So then if a child goes back to the home, can DCF visit again if they get another complaint? Is the case over? What happens then?
1: Right. So typically if the child gets returned to the home, then the case in front of the judge is pretty much done.
0: It's done. So there are circumstances Mm – this is horrific to talk about – but there are circumstances where a child then – something worse happens right and we lose right. kids and people then immediately point the fig- the finger at DCFS but if it has taken the route that we've just described where DCF did the job of taking the child out goes before a judge a judge returns the child to the pa- to the parents something horrific happens in that insane scenario people do blame DCFS sometimes but in that scenario I just laid out was there anything else DCFS could have done
1: no no not really yeah. No, and I think people maybe blame DCFS because they think DCFS could have done more, or DCFS, they're the ones with the direct knowledge, so they should have presented more evidence to a judge, perhaps. But I guess the DCFS is significant in that they get to place the child. So if they place the child with a traditional foster family, being people that have no connection to this child at all, or a relative or family member or friend of the family, That's up to DCFS's discretion. The judge does not order where the child should be placed.
0: Okay, so then we're unwinding. So in the scenario where a judge determines where the child goes, I think we can all agree that in most cases DCFS did their job and um, it's a horrible situation. But what you're saying is if the judge agrees with the prosecutor and then DCFS, then they work through subcontracted Entities to figure out what is to do, what we're going
1: to do with this kid. Right. And through subcontracted agencies to provide like counseling services, anger management, domestic violence, substance abuse, things like that.
0: And that's where sometimes DCFS gets the blame. They've maybe place child, the child in another unsafe situation, or they haven't given the child the resources they need to succeed in those situations.
1: Right, right. Or when DCFS is investigating a particular family, the family appears well on paper, but they don't see really truly what's behind closed doors 23 other hours of the day when they only see him for an hour or so. right.
0: And I think that in that situation, scrutiny against DCFS or the process in which they operate could perhaps be warranted. So I guess we have situations where scrutiny against DCFS is warranted, but we need to make sure we understand that there are situations in which DCFS did everything that they were prescribed to do, and it, and. I'm- terrible thing happened, but through no th- no fault of their own. Am I kind of reading that correctly? Correct. So I think we need to take these things case by case, right? Because there are definitely situations where maybe they didn't do enough, and there's situations where they did. I'm I'm sorry. I, ha- I hate to kind of like lay it out like this, but I think it's really understand- important to understand this. We're going to take a break, and then I want to flip the script about where too many calls are happening and what happens on the other side of that. More with Audrey Anderson from Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. AndersonAA.com, dot com six three zero eight seven seven fifty eight hundred more after this on let's get legal Audrey you mind if we take a call I think you'll have to put on your headphones there and there's a little headphone dial on your uh, on your board there to be able to hear can you hear me now Audrey yes perfect all right let's go to Josh Josh you're on WGN Josh it sounds like you're hey, driving afternoon. right now I uh, there you go go ahead uh, what your what what are your thoughts on this
2: yeah good afternoon good afternoon guys uh, really enjoying the the DCFS conversation it's just uh, frustrating on my end when, you know, that the case that happened to those two little boys in Belvedere earlier earlier this year. I knew I knew those boys and I knew the grandma that actually had custody of them uh, you know quite well. I grew up down the road from the grandma in my hometown and it's just frustrating because the those two guys, those two boys have reasonably over there to begin with. And Josh,
0: I hate to admit, and you know, I maybe have heard of the case earlier in the year, I actually am not very familiar with the story you're you're referring to. Could you give us just, you know, the the, the I don't know, also highlights, there's nothing to about that, but the, the yeah, main absolutely. the yeah, bullet points.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The 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 two sons of the father were at the house with the father. Um the father was involved with drugs and other nefarious things and a gentleman showed up and Killed the father in front of the two sons and then decided uh. to shoot them, the, the sons as well. Um, uh. It happened in Belvedere maybe last December.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's...
2: Um, so, yeah, if you, if, you, if you look it up, you can get some more details yeah, on it. It's just frustrating because they shouldn't have been over there to begin with. Yeah. Josh, I and
0: appreciate the phone call. Happened. Do you know if DCFS had visited the family before?
2: Uh, I believe so. I believe it all happened with the courts Yeah, beforehand. Uh, grandma had custody... Of the two children, would take them to school. They went to school in a different town than where the parents were located, okay. and uh, it's just, you know, just frustrating to see that happen.
0: I'll try and read a little and, bit more about know. that in the news, and uh, to be able to speak more uh, poignantly about that. Josh, I appreciate the phone call. Okay. Yep. Thanks. Yeah, you can hear the frustration in Josh's voice, Audrey, when these tragedies happen. Um,
1: he made a good point about grandparents, though. I have a lot of grandparents that call us and our firm because DCFS has placed the kids with them. Mm-hmm. And then DCFS changes their mind and places the kids back with the parents. So grandparents call because they want... And they, unfortunately, are saying that their child, the parents, should never have these kids. So what rights do they have to do to go to court? And grandparents, unfortunately, have zero rights. So we probably get a call once every couple weeks about a grandparent saying the kids should never have been removed from them and placed back with the parent. But there's nothing a grandparent can do.
0: Yeah. And I get why there is nothing that they can do. You don't want to set up a system where anyone and I know grandparents aren't just anyone would just be able to claim that the parents aren't able to do this. But on the flip side, if it's a grandparent saying that about their own kid, I would trust a grandparent to assess the situation better than anybody else, better than any DCFS worker strolling into the situation, right?
1: Right, absolutely. And it's always been a grandparent that calls about their own kid is not a good parent. It's not like they're saying it's their, their in-law.
0: In-law, right.
1: Child. Yeah. So oh, it's, my gosh. you would think that they would know firsthand.
0: I think there's a myth that DCFS is here to create great families that run well and, and, and keep every kid safe. And I think that is a lofty goal that DCFS probably strives to. But is that really what, can DCFS fix a family?
1: No, unfortunately they can't because if DCFS decides to leave a child with a family, they can offer the family services, but it's completely voluntary. So if the family wants to have help with daycare or counseling, DCFS can provide that and send them information to private Entities or organizations to help, but it's completely voluntary for the parents. DCFs can't force a family to accept help.
0: I want to under, make underscore this. So the real power that DCF has, DCFs has, is the power to remove a child from a family and take that child, essentially, the situation to a judge. Correct. After that, the family has voluntary obligations. They can they can do things or not.
1: Correct. Exactly.
0: Wow. So a lot of people that say. DCFS didn't do enough. I mean, DCFS could counter and say, we presented all of these options and tried to convince these parents to do this X, Y, or Z. We did not have the power to take the child out in that situation, or we tried or whatever. But they just didn't listen.
1: Correct. And that happens, I'm sure, a lot. But unfortunately, you will never hear about that because everything about each individual case and investigation is sealed because it involves juveniles. So DCFS really can't defend themselves by saying all the services that they attempted to provide.
0: Okay. Audrey, you're going to stick around into the next hour. I got to keep you a little longer. Six three zero eight seven seven fifty eight hundred is how you reach Audrey Anderson. She does a lot more than DCFs stuff. We'll talk a little bit more about that after the news, which is coming up next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom on WGN. You do a lot of yard work this morning, Audrey. You gotta rake the leaves or no?
1: No, we were trunk or treating.
0: <laughs> you were tr- this morning.
1: Yes, this morning.
0: Oh, is that how they do it wherever you're from?
1: Yes, so wherever you're uh, yeah. from, I
0: didn't mean to make it sound like that on the western burbs. On the western,
1: yeah, yeah. No, we were invited, and it was a gorgeous day.
0: Oh, that's a great day to go trick or treating. I've always been of the belief that they should do the Saturday near the 31st instead of on Halloween. A bunch of Monday afternoon trick or treaters just doesn't feel right, but that's what they'll be doing. Okay, we. Uh, this is a hard pivot. DCFS. It's never. It's never the most fun conversation, but I do find it enlightening. I feel like a lot of people have a lot of passion about what happens with DCFS. And I think it's because a lot of our listeners have kids, have grandkids. They've gone through that process and they know what that's like. And, um, but I think a lot of people don't know exactly what happens. We recap, I'll try and recap this quickly in the last hour. DCFS, if they get called, they can go to the hospital, to a school, to a home. They visit, they make a determination. And is it? Imagine they only have a. And how long can they stay there to do an interview or an assessment of how long they can determine if a kid's going to be taken out or not?
1: They can stay there as long as they need to.
0: Okay, so they stay there. They they are able to interview, chat with whoever they want to chat with. If they make the determination, the kid needs to leave. There is a hearing that happens with a judge. What's that hearing called?
1: It's called a shelter care.
0: Okay, and what is that hearing like?
1: So it's a hearing where the DCFS caseworker has to come and testify for the prosecutor, and then the prosecutor has to show that there were no other alternatives but to take the child from the home and that there was urgent and immediate necessity to remove the child from the home.
0: These cases are sealed, so we don't get a lot of details about them.
1: Correct. They are sealed, so it's not like you can go in to watch to see what's going on.
0: Right. So if the kid is ultimately determined to go back to the family DCFS can potentially make recommendations on what families can do, but DCFS themselves cannot fix a family.
1: Right, because at these hearings, the caseworker can say, well, I spoke with the doctor and the doctor said it could be abuse. But then the parents will testify saying, no, it was an accident. Mm -hmm. So then it's up to the judge to decide. Was it the parents who were actually firsthand witnesses or a doctor who said, well, yeah, it could have been an accident, but it also could be abuse?
0: Right. So that's a hard determination to make. If DCFS and the prosecutors, quote unquote, win their case and the child is removed from the home, DCFS works with subcontractors to try and find a suitable situation for that child. OK, here's a question that uh, a lot of people have. We talked about can DCFS fix a family? Why isn't it then that we put the onus and we put the burden, a huge burden of proof on the parents to prove that they are not abusive? And I think I know the answer to that question. But well, you go ahead and talk about that.
1: Right. That's what they do. There, it's not. There's no black and white manual for these mm-hmm. caseworkers. So it's really subjective for each individual caseworker. So there's inconsistencies in the different office locations. So they can err on the side of caution to remove a child, but then sometimes it is that rare genetic defect that can cause brittle bones or a vitamin deficiency that causes brittle bones. So then unfortunately, the parent has to spend tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees and their own experts to fight the government to say it really was an accident.
0: Let me uh, specifically talk about that. You're talking about there's some offices that if there is a broken bone, that kid is immediately pulled out of the home. Correct. There are some offices where that's not the case. Correct. That doesn't seem right. To me, there's, I'm not trying to say which side is right or wrong. I'm trying to say that there should be a consistent message coming from the top.
1: There should be a consistent message, but the problem is there's – not the same doctors. So not all doctors will say 100% it was abuse or 100% it was an accident. Mm-hmm. So it depends on which hospital a child is taken to. Some some emergency room doctors can say, oh, yes, the parent's explanation seems reasonable. Whereas if they take them to Lurie's, mm-hmm. they have specialists that just deal with child abuse. Mm-hmm. So they would maybe err on, yes, it is more likely abuse than accident.
0: Let, let's take broken bones out of the equation because obviously not every case involves broken bones bones in fact probably many of them do not they're 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 calls from other people and then it's not from a hospital something's going on in the home i've called about that i imagine a lot of listeners are saying now well in the interest of making sure that kids are alive and safe why don't we just pull if, if dcfs is coming to the house they should be pulling the kids out of the house and let a judge decide this. Why isn't that done in 100% of cases?
1: I think because they think about the trauma to the child themselves, especially if they're younger children. Most of these d cases that I've seen in 20 years deal with younger children, not even preteens. So it's pretty traumatic to remove an infant or a five, six, eight, nine year old from a home from a parent and throw them in a completely stranger's family. And sometimes they can't even find a home for all the children that are in the house. So say it's four children from a home. Are there foster families that are equipped to handle four children? So then you start dividing up children. So it's pretty traumatic for a child to be torn out of their home, placed in a completely different town or county sometimes, going to different schools perhaps. So no one wants to really cause that emotional destruction on a child.
0: So there is a danger in overdoing it. I guess you could say. Yes. Okay. What about people that would say, and we've had a few texts like that, if DCFS is coming to your home, you're not a good parent.
1: But see, that's not necessarily the case because it's just a snapshot of a person's life. So I've had so many clients where it's just truly an accident. So parents are Zooming and working from home. They thought the other parent was looking and watching a child. And before you know it, the child managed to unlock a door and go outside, even though it's a beautiful, sunshiny day and they're found down the street. That's a complete accident. Those Mm -hmm. were excellent parents. And this will never happen again. So they really don't deserve to have their child taken away from them because of a one in a million incident that happened to them.
0: Let me share something with you that I'm even embarrassed to admit, but it happened to me this week. I was watching, I hope my uh, brother isn't listening with his wife. I was watching the niece and two nephews, getting them ready for school. I had never had this role before. I was in the morning and we had to walk to the school bus stop with the two older ones and I was obviously in charge of all three. The younger one wanted to know where his umbrella was. He went out in the garage and then he started walking to the bus stop on his own. I turned around for two seconds. I'm sure every parent's like nodding along. They've done this. You turn around for four seconds to deal with one kid putting their coat on. I'm like, wait, where's the other one? Luckily, I run outside. He's, well, he's just walking down the sidewalk. I'm like, get back here, get back here. But I had never experienced that turn around for one second and oh my gosh, what has happened moment. And my heart leapt to the top. So, Someone could have seen that and called DCFS on me, right?
1: Absolutely. And I've represented clients where that's happened. They've turned around for two of the kids that are the the youngest and an eight, nine-year-old just started walking to school because they weren't paying attention or they were going to be late. And so then some person driving down a road sees a kid walking on their own and calls DCFS. Well, I'm in my 40s. When I was in third or fourth grade, it seemed acceptable (laughs) for you to be walking around by yourself. So nowadays, apparently it's not acceptable for some people and for DCFS. So there's a disconnect there of what was acceptable to go a block or two down to the park or a bus stop now, whereas years ago it was.
0: We don't have an answer to this, this DCFS issue, of course. I didn't think we'd get one by the end of the show. I think that there just needs to be a lot more realization that this is a very gray area, that every child that passes in Illinois is a tragedy. And oftentimes those tragedies are, if you look deeper into them, are tragedies built on top of tragedies, on top of tragedies. It's many circumstances that lead to the most horrific thing. There are situations, perhaps, where a caseworker did not do the right thing with DCFS. There are situations where the caseworker did everything they were supposed to do, and this thing happened. So when we start lobbying this around like a political football and trying to blame individual people, Um, that we get into gray areas. But there are problems with the institutions that we have as well, and there are people that are responsible for those institutions at the top of our leadership. I guess what I'm getting at, Audrey Anderson, is that there's no great answer to this. We just need to really look into all these cases and start trying to figure out ways to help DCFS do a better job at what they do.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I think just for regular people, the only thing that you could possibly do to help is perhaps volunteer to become a foster family, because it gives DCFS more options Then, if there's more foster families and people out there willing to help.
0: Yeah. All right. You do a lot more than DCFS stuff and, and juvenile defense, but you do a lot of things, Audrey. Tell us a little bit about your firm, what you do, why people should call you. The elevator pitch, as we say.
1: Right. So we do criminal defense, everything from traffic to murder for juveniles and adults, in addition to DCFS abuse and neglect cases.
0: And you do expungements off records.
1: We do expungements, or even if you're being investigated for a crime to call law enforcement or if your child's being investigated for a crime. Yes. So we handle all of that.
0: And you don't like to talk about yourself too much, but you were a former, you worked in the prosecutor's office in DuPage County. Now you're on the defense side. I think that arms you with a lot of uh, tools in your tool chest to be able to uh, help clients out.
1: I think so, too. It gives me a very unique perspective.
0: Yeah, for sure. 630-877-5800 is how people can reach you, right? Right. We've had so many conversations, Audrey. I know we're going to have more, but I just want to really make sure people understand and get this number down. 630-877-5800. You can put Audrey Anderson in your phone if you want. If you don't need to call today, that's fine. Have that number in your phone? Because Audrey, as we've talked about in the past, time matters when it comes to a defense.
1: It definitely does matter.
0: So if you are, what areas do you serve primarily? And if not, you could probably refer people to other people, right?
1: Right. So typically we're in the DuPage Cook, Collar Counties.
0: Okay. 630-877-5800. Audrey Anderson, put that number in your phone, andersonaa.com. Audrey, thanks for giving us some extra time today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.